All right, so we are in lesson number seven in our study, and um, obviously we're still in Genesis chapter one, working our, th- our way through the days of creation, and we've obviously covered a lot of ground um, in terms of establishing um, presuppositions or predetermined ways of thinking and approaching the passage that differ significantly from the ways in which someone with a secular mindset or someone from the secular scientific community, for example, uh, or a secular uh, philosopher might approach something like um, the the literature in Genesis chapter 1 as it speaks about the origins of the universe and all that we know. Um, We come before the scriptures, obviously, with presuppositions of God's full authority, his uh, eternal power, his freedom to do and create and form how he wills, when he wills, for the purposes that he wills. And we come also with the recognition that we are fallen, that there, there are consequences to sin, and part of those consequences that we'll obviously uh, look into when we get to Genesis chapter 3, but part of those consequences are that we bring limitations to the text of Scripture, especially when we start thinking about things of, of, of how God could have done this or how, how these kinds of uh, revelations about God's creative work over the six days of creation, um, how they kind of resonate or line up with or, or help us understand better the universe in which we live in, which is a post-fall experience. We are, we are living in a time when we are after the fall and we have limitations intellectually, we have limitations uh, in our own corrupted nature, um, that's oriented towards sin, and so we live in a world that's surrounded or that's immersed in this in this fallen environment. And so all the messages and all the things and the ways that we think and our habits of thinking can often be influenced, if not um, um, directly leading us into erroneous thinking. And and really, ultimately, when you look at Genesis chapter one in particular, and you just and we're going to reflect on this uh, toward the end of our time today, but you just remember that this is revealing the creator God to us. That it is not intended to be a, a, um, something that you and I just kind of put under our own little microscope and say, okay, here's, here's, here's one option, here's one version of how things came into be. Let me put it under my grand microscope and study it and analyze it and break it apart but that you're seeing God revealing himself in his power and his creativity and his, his orientation towards sovereign rule and order and all these things. And so our response ought to be growing and growing as we walk through this in a response of worship and awe and wonder and gratitude um, at who God is. And so we just need to keep that in mind as we continue to walk through this text. I want to kind of work through uh, the days of creation quickly uh, and get to the last few days that we didn't really touch on. And just so you guys know, the, the, the way that I'm kind of thinking about moving through this as we go forward um, is to kind of get us through uh, the first half of creation day six before you get to the creation of man and woman. Um, because I do want to just, I want to just kind of settle there for a while. Obviously, you know, for obvious reasons, a lot of implications there that we want to we talk about. But I want to kind of just work through um, in, 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 a, in a high level way, as we have been, the, the six, first five and a half, or what is it? S- five, yeah, five and a half days of creation. How do, you, how do you add that up? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, the ha- half of day six, however that is. Um, 
And I'm not sure if it was like half a day. Like I'm not, I'm not thinking that, you know, halfway through the day God said, okay, I'm done with this part. Take a little coffee break. And I'm, I'm just saying, as it, as it rolls out in the text, um, before we get to the creation of man, uh, I want to just kind of do somewhat of a flyby. I want to take a few sort of um, deep dives into a few matters. But I think what I want to do is come back uh, at a later time and look at the totality of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And I want us to kind of reflect on and look at other places in Scripture where the creation narrative is referenced in one way or another, whether it's referenced in some literal sense in terms of quotation or whether it's referenced in more of a figurative way with, with poetic language that you might see uh, in the Psalms or the prophets, um, and draw some inferences from that look as well as take a look at some of the common objecti- objections and things that you might face from more of an um, um, unbelieving world kind of perspective, although I don't want to spend a ton of time there. We've been doing that a little bit here and there. But just kind of talk about some of those objections, particularly those that might have to do with uh, uh, understanding, uh, ways of understanding or interpreting the text itself. So we're going to kind of come back around to it and look at it in a much bigger picture kind of way and deal with some of the more bigger ideas and implications from the totality of scripture perspective, as well as from just this perspective of understanding where arguments against a, a literal six-day creation might come into play and how we might uh, approach those, particularly from the text of scripture. So that's the general direction where I think we might go as we kind of fly through this uh, initially here and come back around to it in a more, um, more significant way later. So creation day one, we talked about that um, a, a number of weeks ago. We had the creation of time, space, and matter in, in, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We had the creation of light. Um, we had the declaration of it being good. We had the separation of light from darkness. Um, presumably, this, uh, the earth in its primordial state, uh, even though it was, it's termed formless and void, um, it really means desolate and waste and uninhabitable. Presumably, it was still... Um, um, a sphere. I mean, it was at the time it was a sphere. You have Isaiah saying that, that the Lord sits above the circle of the earth as kind of a reference point in, in another Old Testament passage. And it was suspended in, in the heavens or in space, if you will, um, as it is. And uh, Job 26 talks about how uh, the earth hangs on nothing. So we're kind of uh, uh, thinking that it's probably that's the case because when you have the separation of light from darkness, there's this assumption that possibly the earth was already rotating on its axis. We don't know for sure, but you know, presumably that's what was going on because there is this separation of light from darkness, and that is the introduction on day one of evening and morning the first day. Okay? So there's some, there's some assumptions there that we don't know for sure, but uh, we can kind of make some inferences from some other passages um, from, from God's inspired word that might give us some indication, but nothing too dogmatic or definitive there. Um, but the day closes with morning and, uh, evening and morning the first day. So that's kind of a flyby of creation day one. Uh, creation day two, we talked about the uh, creation of the Earth's atmosphere, or it's called an expanse. Let there be an expanse, it says. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as a firmament. This is in verses 6 through 7 of Genesis chapter 1. Um, it's a, it's a, the idea of, a, of, of an inhabitable or breathable, if you will, atmosphere. And remember, we talked about how when you look at the, the flow of the text, it's God moving from, from disorder and chaos into order, and, he's, and it's moving from what is uninhabitable to a habitation, okay? And so he's, he's creating 
He's moving toward uh, the things that would be necessary for the habitation of life. Um, and so we have this, this creation of an expanse uh, that is identified as another separation. So in the creation day one, you have a separation of light from darkness. And then you get to creation day two with this expanse, and it is separating what? What do you remember? What, what, what's the separation in creation day two? Waters from waters. Okay, that's kind of an interesting uh, idea, right? I mean, we're separating the waters below from the waters above. Um, and there's various, uh, this came up uh, as, as one possibility uh, in our discussion, but I'll just kind of uh, bring that full circle where um, it's possible. Some, some would uh, endorse that the waters above would have been a uh, pre-flood um, sort of unique um, sort of water canopy that, um, that sort of was like a, a, a vapor layer around the earth or at the edge of the outer edge of the earth's atmosphere that created kind of a protective canopy around the earth and, and, and sort of uh, protected the earth from the most harmful uh, rays from the sun. Um, it could have contributed to the longevity of life when you look at the age of people and the, or the early uh, genealogies um, in Genesis. And so there's this idea that possibly the waters above the expanse could have been something unique to that pre-flood environment, okay? And that's possible. We don't have anything that would sort of make that completely necessary or, or we could hold to dogmatically, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not inconceivable. Uh, and, and in particular, when you look at the, the flood narrative that we'll get to when we get to Genesis chapter 7, um, the, it says that the, what, what, happens, it, what happens in the heavens? Remember the, 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 the sort of the metaphor that's used there? The windows of heaven open up. So there's this idea that part of what contributed to the deluge of the flood was rain, but it could have been something very unique because we're talking about a very different uh, environment post-flood, and we're talking about a cataclysmic event when you talk about the flood, and we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get to it. But the idea is that it's possible that this was a very unique waters above the expanse as opposed to what it is now. It could be just reference to water vapor that's in existence today above, you know, above the Earth's atmosphere. I mean, it, could be, it, could not, it might not necessarily be something that's unique. We don't know, is the point. So it's kind of interesting to think about that and, and possibly um, consider that that could be the case and have some indication that that's, you know, it's plausible, but it's certainly not necessary um, for the un an understanding of the text. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, so anyway, there, there you have the waters above, the, water above, the waters below, and again, this idea of separation, which I want to kind of come back to in, in, in a little while. Um, uh, again, made reference to the fact that there is no verdict of God on this particular day. We established early on that there's a general pattern that takes place where God speaks, and he, he creates by the will of his power and by the word of his power, and he says something, and it comes into be, and usually there is a verdict that he declares on it, namely that he saw that it was good, or he, said, he declares it good. And, and so in this particular day, there's no declaration of a verdict. The implication being that he's not finished with this particular in, in, in a part of creating the inhabited um, earth. And so, don't know that for sure either, but it's just kind of an assumption because when you get down to the next creative day and you see what he does 
continuing on with this forming work. Remember we talked about how there's this change in focus from Genesis chapter 1 to creating the heavens and the earth to really getting focused on the earth, and you start in the creation process, this process of forming the earth, of forming a habitation, and then you get on down into the creation account. We'll see this more fully today where he's filling the earth, right? So there's a forming and then there's a filling. That's kind of the, the, the model that you see here. And so it's as though he's, he's still forming. Um, there's still the forming, formation process of, of a habitation for living creatures and, and for man ultimately. So just something to think about there that we talked about. Um, and then there was the close of evening and morning the second day. Uh, we looked at creation day three somewhat briefly last week. And um, this is where you have the forming of dry land and the gathering together of the waters and forming them into seas. This is verses 9 through 10 of Genesis chapter 1. And again, another separation, right? So you have the first day, separation of light from darkness. The second day, you have this expanse that separates the waters below from the waters above. And then you have this other uh, uh, reference to a separation in that it's gathering the waters. It's separating the land from the waters. So there's another separation that's taking place. Something else that we didn't talk about last time that I just want to draw your attention to, notice that it, we, we did talk about how if you just think about the, the, what is really being described here, about how, how massive of a tectonic shift of, of land emerging from water, I mean, it's hard for us to envision that, and all we can do to try to get a glimpse of it is to think of things that would represent earth movement in our experience and what that must have been like. And we talked about the great tsunami that, that occurred um, in Southeast Asia. Isn't that right? We said Taiwan and it affected other areas, right? I can't remember, Indonesia. Am I, am I getting that right? Thailand. Thailand, Thailand yes, Thailand. Um, but how that was a result of a, a tectonic shift below the earth's, uh, uh, below the ocean, right? And it, I mean, just that, that movement alone while from our vantage point and on the scale of recorded, um, you know, earthquakes and that kind of thing, it was, a, it was a massive tectonic shift, but like not even a com- close comparison to what we're talking about. And you saw what the result was of that massive movement of water. And of course, uh, tragically and unfortunately, the devastation that occurred and the, and the loss of life and all that. But just to give us a sense of the power, again, coming back to... What, what we're seeing in Genesis on display, we're not seeing this, this little neat little tidy textbook, science textbook of how things came into being so that we can say, oh, that's cool. What, what we should be seeing is this powerful God at work doing things that when you really step back and think about it, it is utterly staggering to even consider. And really, we fall short. I mean, we cannot get there intellectually. We cannot get there and conjuring up accurate images in our minds. And so again, we come back and we just sort of stand in awe of the God that we worship. And, and more, more significantly, the God who has called us to himself. So just amazing, uh, I think amazing impact that, that a look at this Genesis account, this uh, creation account in Genesis can have on our, our, just our, our spiritual vitality and our, uh, the depth of our worship of our, of our living God and creator. So the separation of, of land from earth, excuse me, from land from the seas. One thing I want you to notice that I didn't mention last time, as I said, is that it's dry land. Now think about that for a second. 
How do you get from being completely submerged in water, now we're talking about a 24-hour day, to dry land? So another, another evidence of God's immense power, that he separated the seas from the land, and it was dry land. In other words, it was land that was prepared for what? What's next? Vegetation. I mean, he's going to fill it. He's continuing to fill the earth. So if we just think in terms of naturalistic processes, and this is what often happens when people come to the Genesis account, even professing Christians who feel compelled to accommodate naturalistic science to the narrative, this is one of those sticking points where it's like, well, there's, I mean, you know, there's no way that you could have dry ground emerge if it was completely submerged before that. And, and it's easy for us to think like that. I mean, think about when we have tons and tons of rain. I mean, you can go out two or three days later and still step in puddles of mud and it's just saturated and nasty, right? I mean, so it's not, it's not dry. You really couldn't, I mean, if it's, if it's enough rain, if there's been enough sitting water, the, the first moment that, that ground appears uh, without the water covering it, it's not, you don't want to start planting in it. I mean, it's not going to, it's not habitable. It's not good walking terrain. I mean, there's just, it's just soggy mess. And so people come across that and they're like, there's no way, when, when you start m multiplying that concept on the scale of the earth, the surface of the earth, and you start thinking about the massive you know, water covering the earth and then it emerging, it, people stumble over this idea of you know, the continents emerging and, and it being dry. And again, I come back to the principle of, yeah, I mean, if you're, if, you have, if you're forcing your thinking into naturalistic processes, yeah, it's, it's not going to work. But we've got all kinds of things going on here that defy naturalistic explanations already. So again, we come back to our presupposition. We're talking about supernatural creation by fiat, out of nothing, by an eternal creator God. So again, it's just worthy to note that that the, 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 even, even in the inspired writing of the text, it's crying out against anything that would be naturalistic in nature. It, it's, like, it's like slamming the door closed on that. Like, don't even, don't even, I mean, it's absurd to even think that. You can't have dry land emerge from the ocean in a natural way. There's got to be a supernatural explanation to that. There's got to be a supernatural work that makes that happen. So, what's that? Exactly. I mean, you, I mean, again, and that, that's what I was thinking about earlier, too. I mean, even if we start, when you start thinking about trying to, it's really, it's really interesting how, you know, and I'm, I, a lot of people that are, are um, you know, seek to be faithful to the, the text and, and you know, tw you know six-day literal creation, and you know, they've made these really great points about this, so this is not some new genius idea I come up, I've come up with myself. I'm just saying it's, it's always compelling to me to hear people talk about how, isn't it interesting and, and somewhat sad and unfortunate how people get really hung up on the supernatural work of an all-powerful creator God in the context of his creative work in six literal days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, but they don't see that there's a conflict that they're going to run into on accounts in the New Testament. For example, Jesus feeding 5,000 people plus women and children with what? Uh, right, I mean, a few fish and some loaves, and there was, there was food left over. I mean, we're talking about a creative miracle. There was, there was food created out of not enough food. I mean, it's, it, I mean, so 
You talk about the resurrection, you talk about the virgin birth, I mean, on and on and on it goes. It's just interesting to me how you've got even professing Christians who, who, will, who will cling to, they must cling to the uh, miracle-working power of Christ, and they certainly aren't going to let go of the resurrection or the virgin birth too easily, although, you know, through the years many have. But you come to the Genesis account, and there's this feeling of compulsion to say, yeah, but you know, science is saying this, and, and it really couldn't be this way because naturalistic processes wouldn't allow for this to happen. And you're, you're going, yeah, I know, they wouldn't. You're right. And I'm okay with that. And so it's just, it's just interesting to me to think about how that kind of happens over and over again in people's thinking. Again, we see this shift taking place here in Creation Day 3 because in addition to um, this separation of the, the land, the dry land from the seas and the waters, um, you, you see the initial beginning of God filling the earth. Um, he starts this emphasis here. Uh, Alan Ross, Dr. Alan Ross, uh, said, says it this way, the emphasis now begins to shift uh, in this part of Creation Day 3 from bringing order to bringing fullness to the earth. Um, John MacArthur says it this way, of all the days of Genesis 1, this third day brought about the most dramatic changes in the way the earth looked. Something interesting to think about. At the beginning of the day, the face of the earth was covered with water and probably had the appearance of a seething cauldron of mud. By the end of the day, it was a paradise of green-covered earth decorated with all the hues of various flowers and trees set in the midst of a spectacular blue ocean. So you have now moving from forming the earth in this creation day three to starting to fill the earth because what happens next is he starts to create vegetation and plant life and trees and seed-bearing plants and and seed-bearing uh, fruit trees, each after its kind, right? This is where we start this introduction of the creation of these, these living things on the earth in, th in the form of vegetation and plant life and trees for fruit and food and so forth. And you see here this statement, this refrain that is repeated 10 times going forward in Genesis chapter 1. And if something's repeated 10 times in this sort of verses, it's probably something that's rather important, right? It's this phrase, each according to their own kind, or each according to its kind, some version of that phrase. So over and over again, you see this repeated, and it begins here in the sprouting or bringing forth of all manner of vegetation and seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees, each according to their kinds. So I want to just read something to you about the importance of that. We talked about that a little bit last week and how that cries out against any kind of uh, evolutionary process where things mutate over years and years and years and years and years and so things become something else over time and natural selection and, and adaptation and so forth. Um, this says each according to its kind. The fact that creatures reproduce according to their own kind is a fundamental rule of genetics. Each organism has a unique DNA structure with genes and chromosomes that determine all its characteristics. Careful breeding can emphasize or minimize certain characteristics within genotypes, but no amount of cross-pollination can cause a whole new life form to arise from the species that exists. And boundaries are set on which species may be cross-pollinated. Attempting to cross-breed an oak tree with a fungus would not produce any offspring whatsoever, much less a whole new species. In fact, it is fair to say that this crucial phrase, according to its kind, clearly refutes the very heart of the evolutionary idea. It debunks the notion that all life descended from a common source, and it sets 
a limitation on the degree of difference between any creature and its offspring. Plants cannot bring forth anything but more plants with characteristics inherited from their parents. Likewise, animals can reproduce only more animals of their own kind. The offspring may have slightly different characteristics from either of their parents, but those characteristics will nonetheless be inherited from the parent's genetic makeup. Crossbreeding cannot produce new species. Above all, plant life cannot produce animal life. There is no known process by which a plant or any combination of plants lacking the higher faculties of intelligent life could ever produce animal offspring. The seed is the part of the organism that makes reproduction possible. A pollinated seed contains a complete genetic map for the offspring of the plant. Its characteristics as an adult plant are already programmed into the seed's genetic code from the movement, uh, from the moment the seed is pollinated, and that is what determines that each organism will produce according to its kind. So you already have here in this statement, each according to its kind, long before Moses or the Hebrews of that day could get out their microscopes and do you know, DNA testing. And I mean, they didn't have visibility into this, but you have this reference to the fact that, that God has created according to its kind, and it's, it's actually mapped in the, in the subatomic structure of life, right? And that's kind of the point here. So I think that, that if Moses had a little more technology, he probably would have said all of that. He probably would have just gone ahead and said all that and just made it, you know, clarified the whole record for everybody. But it's just amazing. Again, isn't it just amazing to think about how these phrases that, that are just sitting out there are so important to understanding um, God's creative work and how, how it, e- even without trying, I mean, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, was not having to combat naturalistic evolution at that time. That's not, that's not the, the worldview that he was, the, the context in which he was writing. And yet, this just, again, gives great validation to the transcendent nature of God's inspired word for all time. Okay, so <clears throat> now you have uh, creation day four. Well, actually, there's another verdict that's, uh, that's declared uh, in verse 12 on creation day three, and then the close of the day with evening and morning the third day. So creation day three, we've made this shift from forming to filling with this uh, introduction of vegetation and seed-bearing plants and seed-bearing fruit trees and each according to its kind, um, God's verdict saying that it's good, and then the close of the day on the third day. Now we get to creation day four, and this is in verses 14 and 19, and I don't think we, I think this is where we stop. So let's just go ahead and pick up uh, in the actual passage in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. So here we have creation day four, and we have God setting into the cosmos the heavenly bodies, particularly the ones that we observe and that have direct bearing on our life and our experience of life on this planet. We have the creation uh, of sun, moon, and the starry host of heaven, if you want to look at it that way, in verses 14 and 19. Again, he speaks of a separation. He, see, he speaks of separating the day from the night. He, he puts these, 
these starry hosts to, to be another separation of day from night. So I just want you to take note that there's this repeated theme of, of separating things in this, in this creation narrative. We'll come back to it in a minute. He also says that, that the purpose of this is for signs and seasons and days and years. So he is establishing a purpose for the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And we talked about this uh, last few weeks when we, we, did, uh, we talked about creation day one and, and the, when God said, let there be light. And we made the point that this is light that is not attached to the sun. And so now we have the creation of the sun. And, and you can see that God is, is establishing a purpose in attaching. Uh, there's an illumination purpose that he's attaching to these heavenly bodies. So there is, a, there is a sort of a design language here that we see even with these heavenly bodies. So in some way, I don't know how, and I don't know exactly how to explain it scientifically or otherwise, but God chose to have an, a created light that was not attached to or, or merged with in any way a, a, a heavenly celestial body at the beginning of creation. And then in this creation day four, he infuses that if you want to call it responsibility, I don't know, that's the, probably not the best word, of, of illumination to these heavenly bodies. And he speaks of the greater light and the lesser light that we'll talk about in just a minute. So, so but he says that these are for, for um, before we get to the illumination purpose, he says that they are for signs and seasons and days and years. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when, when, you, when you think of that kind of, that kind of purpose of these celestial bodies? Signs, seasons, days, and years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's how we mark time. Right? This, is how, this is how you got your calendar, basically. This is, this is how time is marked. Um, the, the, it has to do with the, the rotation of the Earth on its axis, around the sun, the moon's orbit. All of that ties into how time is marked, how we experience how we really experience life uh, on this planet in many, many ways. Think of it this way. This is a, from MacArthur's Battle for the Beginning. He says, God created the sun, moon, and stars to precise specifications. And as we have seen, they regulate our lives in the sense that they determine the length of our days, months, and years. They determine the seasons in a year, and they mark every facet of our clocks and calendars. The stellar bodies thus determine when we eat, when we work, and when we sleep. And all of this was set in motion perfectly on day four of creation. He says this, now think of it. The rotation of the earth on its axis is what determines a 24-hour day. The moon's orbits around the earth determine our months. And the earth's revolutions around the sun determine our years. Interestingly, there is nothing in the celestial bodies that determines a week. And yet, humanity universally numbers the calendar by weeks. Where did that come from? Well, the creation week of Genesis 1. It was the period of time in which God created the universe, and ever since, it has governed how humanity marks time. So you have the celestial bodies marking off seasons of, of days and months and years, and then you have the actual creation narrative of six days of creation seventh day of rest as marking off the week. And that's how, that's how man has functioned in terms of time. 
Amazing. It has an illuminating purpose as well, the, the, to illuminate the earth, it says. And, and this is obviously a necessary component for life to sus be sustained on this planet. Um, you, you know, you have to have light for, for our ecosystem and for photosynthesis and all these other functions and, and the warmth of the sun and the ruling of, of the sun and its, and its rotation, uh, our, 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 um, the earth's uh, rotation on its axis and, and all, all the ways that, that the sun functions to, to control the seasons and dictate the seasons and, and the implications of that on seed time and harvest and supplying food and I mean on and on and on and on it goes this importance of, of illumination. So God, God attaches light as an illuminating uh, purpose to these heavenly bodies. He calls the sun the greater light to rule the day and the moon the lesser light to rule the night. One of those places where people will go, wait, time out. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? Foul, penalty flag. Moon doesn't produce light. Right, so okay, the whole thing, house of cards just came tumbling down. We are now all evolutionists. Congratulations. So, of course, this is not intended to describe uh, the, the, uh, the way that the moon projects light. It does, though, reflect light, right? So, are you guys comfortable with the fact that this, the moon is a lesser light? I mean, when you look up in the sky, do you see light from the moon? I do too. It is a lesser light than the sun. Are we all in agreement with the accuracy and precision of that language? It's, it's a reflector of the sun's light, and we know that, but I mean, I don't know that we need to, to sort of throw the book out with the fact that it's not a light source itself. Yes? Right. Like, obviously there are things that God is creating these things this way for aesthetics. Right. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that we use, I mean, we use the reflection of light and call it light all the time. I mean, these things up here, there's reflectors in them. You see those, those cross things? That's a form of, of reflecting light. And if you didn't have those on there, then the light, if you just had one of these fixtures in here and every other fixture was off, and you didn't have those cross, cross reflectors on there, then the light would show differently in here. It would be different. You put those in there, and it reflects the light differently. So it's the idea of reflected light, what we're talking about here, that we know now, but it's still a lesser light in the sky, and it's, it serves the purpose of illumination, as well as the stars. There are also signs, uh, obviously, for navigation, um, uh, purposes and um, for, for centuries people have used the stars and the celestial bodies to, to, um, to guide their way and to create maps and to, to navigate the, the seas and all that. So, um, so God gives these, these lights, these starry hosts and these celestial bodies the purpose of both signs and seasons and days and years as well as illumination. And he declares them good. And there's evening and there's morning, the fourth day. And then we get to creation day five. Let's get to that in the text. And this begins in verse 20. It says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So a little bit of a change here um, on creation day five. You have the creation of what is termed living creatures. So there's a distinction that's drawn here between the, the creation of plant life, of, of vegetation, of trees and plants and, and uh, things for food that are in, in the plant world. Um, there's this term living creatures and it's really a reference to you have the introduction of uh, a, a level of conscious life, of, of the life of living creatures that, that have a, a consciousness. And you can obviously, by observation, you can distinguish the activity of a bird or a fish and there's, there, are, there are certain social, instinctive social dynamics that take place in the animal world that's different from the plant world, right? So you just, it's just this idea of, of living consciousness that's distinct amongst this uh, part of creation that becomes even more pronounced, obviously, when you get to creation day six and the creation of man, of course. Um, so a little distinction there. Uh, so you've got the, the everything, all the teeming creatures of the seas and the, and the waterways, and all of the, the winged creatures that swarm, swarm the skies. So <clears throat> you have this, this uh, filling again of the waters that were separated, the expanse that was separated. Now you're filling the expanse and you're filling the waters with, with life. Okay? So there's some parallel uh, language and, and parallel um, uh, devices that are going on here between, you know, you, you have the expanse and you fill it with the celestial bodies and you fill it with the, the winged things and the, the flying creatures and you have the seas that are separated and you fill that with the, the sea creatures and the fish and the, the, all the things that swarm in the oceans. And, and notice that everything is able to swim and able to fly and able to inhabit that space. So again, the language itself of Genesis does not open the door for any kind of evolutionary process. And if you look at any, any models of evolution, you know that the bird that you see flying in the sky, pick your bird, did not start with the ability to fly in an evolutionary model. But in God's creative work, he's saying, let there be, and there were, and guess what? If they were for the sky, they were flying. If they were in the sea, they were swimming, or waddling, or whatever it is their, you know, their appropriate thing that they do, <laughs> um, depending upon what it is, I guess. Um, and so that's another sort of a little distinction to note there um, in, in how, this is, how this is phrased and termed. Again, another beautiful thing about God's word, solving that dilemma, but chicken and the egg. Um, interestingly enough, he sees that it's good. Again, a verdict is declared, but then he also says a blessing, and then he gives them a command to be fruitful and multiply. So again, another reference to uh, the distinction of the living creatures where they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And if you think about um, the difference between uh, the way that um, plant life is propagated versus the way that the, the you know, animal life and 
birds and, and sea life and that kind of thing is propagated. There is a, there's a, a clear distinction there in the, in the propagation or the multiplication of that. And there's this command to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God's intention is this filling of the earth with this, this wonder of creation uh, in the skies and in the seas and all the waterways. And then there's evening and there's morning, the fifth day. Now, part one, first half of day six, we get to the creation of the living creatures that are on the earth. So you have the living creatures that are created for the skies and the seas, and now you get to the living creatures on the earth. And it says in um, verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. There's that phrase over and over again for emphasis. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So we'll stop there, and we're going to pick up uh, the creation of man uh, at a later time. But let's just look at this real briefly, creation day six. Again, creation of living creatures, that term is used in this section as well. These are the living creatures that are on the earth. Um, again, the, the creation narrative is not intended to give us this, this uh, you know, detailed you know, family of species and all the, you know, all the different things you learn in your, your science classes where you've got all these, I don't, I, you guys know it better than I do, but you've got the genus and the, I don't know, I don't remember, it's been way too long, I'm not even going to try. Can, by the way, can we edit that out of the recording, please? Edit that. I want to sound much smarter than that. But you know what I'm saying, this is not intended to kind of give a detail of that. Um, but this is referring to the things on the earth. So you, again, you see this, this, uh, n- this narrative ling- linguistic or approach to the literature here where you've got, again, a filling of the earth. You had the separation of the waters and this, uh, from the earth, and now you've got uh, another element of filling this earth that has been created. Um, and you're filling it now with, with domesticated type of animals. It mentions livestock. So it's a kind of a reference to a more domesticated type of animal. And then you've got creeping things, which that's a very broad category. I mean, you're, you could be talking about the insect world. You could be talking about the reptile world. I mean, it's just a lot of, a lot of things that could be contained in that. Uh, the beasts of the earth. I, I mean, you're not, I don't know if you've got a category of that on your little chart that you have to memorize in your science class where it just says, okay, these are all the beasts. Um, so these are broad categories to just sort of give us a comprehensive picture of, of primarily land-dwelling living creatures um, that, are, that are roaming the earth and creeping on the earth. And again, God saw that it was good, so he declares a verdict on it as being good. Now, one thing I want to mention, and we'll probably talk about this in a little more detail at a later time, but, um, but just, just as a point of reference, that repeated verdict of God that it's good, he saw that it's good over and over and over again. And he is declaring a verdict on what he has created. And when you just, again, match that up against any kind of naturalistic revolutionary model, um, you, you don't have the ability to be able to make that declaration because it's not good. For a naturalistic evolutionary model to flourish, bad things have to happen over and over and over again. I mean, what's the, what's the, uh, the, the buzz... Um, the buzz phrase for Darwin's or, uh, uh, Origin of the Species, um, 
survival of the fittest, right? That's what I was going for. I'm glad you didn't make me try to describe what I'm trying to pull out of you anymore, straining for words. Yes, survival of the fittest. What does that mean? That's Tennyson, right? So yeah, nature is red and tooth and claw. And, and that's, that's what you have to have for that model to work. And yet you have in the Genesis narrative, over and over again, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's not, it's not dominated by violence and by destruction and by death. In fact, what do we know, those of you that have read ahead, have you guys read ahead? You know like Genesis 3? Nobody, you, aren't, you guys aren't reading ahead, are you? But you know what happens in this Genesis chapter 3, right? That's when you have the introduction of, of death, right? The curse and sin and all that. So, so you can't even, and I'm really speaking to us and, and those that would encounter people who would want to um, force into the Scripture again a naturalistic, evolutionary kind of cosmos and, and, and theory of origins, and, but still try to make the Scriptures you know, fit in some way. It just... It just it does violence to the integrity of Scripture itself in so many ways at every turn. So we just need to be careful of that. God declares it good over and over and over again. And it just doesn't fit a model of natural selection or survival of the fittest or what have you. So in closing uh, for today, just want to remind us, okay, of some things that we just continue to see over and over again. And as you read back through this Genesis narrative and you just think about uh, what you're seeing here. What we see over and over again is God's sovereign work and purpose on display. Th- this, is, this is to demonstrate and to put in writing, if that's even possible, this <coughs> eternal creator, sovereign God. And this is really to juxtapose the eternal, true, and living creator God over and against all the other ideas or notions about gods or God, you know, God or gods who are, you know, the way that the earth came about is through wars and the gods are at war with each other or one God gets split in half and, you know, one half becomes the heavens and one half becomes the earth. I mean, all these different ideas and notions about gods and, and they're all, they all have, certain degrees of power that they use in very self-centered, whimsical ways, and yet they aren't completely sovereign because there's other gods that can come and do war with them. It's just, it's just screaming out against this. No, God is sovereign in his work and purpose, and he's putting it on display as he, even as he creates. We also see God's design, his sovereignty, but also his design. It's purposeful design that brings order out of chaos, that brings symmetry out of discontinuity, if you will. God is a, he's a designer. So he's like the perfect engineer that just knows exactly how things need to fit together to work best and to be stable and to have longevity. There's, there's a designer uh, revealed there. And then you see God's creativity. He's the ultimate artist consummate artist who creates beauty and diversity and variety, all the hues and colors. Think about all the colors of light and all that light reflects and all the hues of plant life and and all the different contrasting colors of different terrains and all that. I mean, just this God of immense beauty who creates things to be so lovely to just look at and, and stand in awe of his creative power. 
And so what I want us to look at at another time, maybe even next time we'll, we'll go here, and I'll just mention it here to kind of close this out. Invariably, when you go to other places in Scripture that make reference to the creative work of God or even make direct reference to you know, the Genesis 1 narrative in some way, invariably you will see those biblical writers writing to draw your attention to the glory and majesty and power and authority of God. So the biblical writers themselves when they refer back to creation, they are basically appealing to their readers at that time and appealing subsequently to us to say, look at your creator God and stand in awe and worship of him. It's either a call to just stand in awe of God's creative power and majesty or bow yourself low. When you look at, for example, Job, the last few chapters of Job, when Job's getting a massive slap down by God, when he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Who, who is this that darkens my counsel? Where were you? So again, this, this call to stand in awe of this, awe, this magnificent God who is sovereign, who designs and brings order out of chaos, and who is the creator of all things beauty, beautiful. Every good and perfect gift is from above, the Father of lights, it says in James. So let's stand in awe of him, and let's actually, let's actually do that when we go into our corporate worship here in just a minute. Let's pray.